this evening we're going to be thinking a little bit about what it means for God to be present to us and what, it, what to do about it when God doesn't feel like he's present with us. So before we start, I'm just going to pray for us and then I'll share with you some of the things I've been thinking about over the last few weeks. So Father God, we thank you that you're present with us here. We thank you for the work that you're doing in this community. We thank you for the work that you're doing in York. And we thank you that before anything we've done today, you were present. Help us to be aware of your presence as we reflect on the truths that are revealed in your word. Amen. Okay, so, what do you think it means when we say that God is present? The Bible has a lot to say about God's presence. Right at the beginning of Scripture, it tells us that God's presence was hovering over the waters of creation. In Jeremiah, it tells us that God's presence fills the heavens and the earth. And Proverbs tells us that God is watching us in every place that we go. If you look to the Psalms, you can find almost every other psalm describes something of the experience of God's presence and the reality of God's presence. For instance, if you look to Psalm 139, David describes the inescapability of God's presence. He can't get anywhere, wherever he looks, wherever he goes to sleep, wherever he's awake, he can't avoid God's presence. In the Psalms, God's presence is also described as a moment in which we could become aware of our own sin. It's a judgment before God. But it's also a moment of joy and gladness. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus came to be God's presence with us. Jesus was to be called Emmanuel because he was God with us. And just before he dies, Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, don't worry, I'm about to leave, but I'm sending someone that will take my place, that will come after I've gone. And in the epistles in the New Testament, the Spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit, is described not only as being present to us, but as somehow being present in us. As Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit lives within us. So the Bible has a lot to say about God's presence. God's presence to us, God's presence with us, and God's presence in us. But like any good philosopher, I think it's important that we define our terms carefully before we think in more detail about these things. So I've got just two quick exercises that I'm going to do with you to try and help us to think a little bit more about different things that we might mean by presence. So the first one, uh, the first thing I'd like you to do is to check the bottom of your chairs. So some of you under your chairs may have found a picture of a strange man. <laughs> if you don't know who that is, you probably should because he's the vicar of G2. Uh, that is Christian. Now, my point is simply this. Christian has been present in this room regardless of our experience of him. Some of, you, some of you have been sitting on Christian's head the whole time and you didn't realize it at all. And in fact, just like God in some ways, many of the things that Christian does for you um, will go unnoticed by you. A lot of the work that he does, you probably don't even realize he's doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I can attest to the fact that, that is true. But... If it's true of Christian, it's even more the case that it's true of God, which is that whether or not you experience God as present in your life, whether you have these profound experiences of God's presence, God is present. God is present 
in all of his creation. God is present in York. God is present in your lives. God is present amongst your friends, in your workplaces, in your university. God is present throughout his entire creation. And it's important to realize that God's presence on, in our lives doesn't depend on our experience of him. God is present regardless. And this is really important for how we think theologically about all sorts of things. But particularly when we think about how we approach worshipping together as God's church, which we're doing tonight, and going out into the world to engage in God's mission. What we're doing is not inviting God to join in this lovely worship service with us, but we are joining in the presence of God, which and a worship that's been going on, even though we don't realize it. So that's the first thing. God is present, and God is at work in our lives and at work in our world. Now, I'd like you to try something else for a second. I'd like you to turn to the person next to you, and I'd like you to ask them your favorite icebreaker question. Uh, you might not have a favorite icebreaker question, but I think to get the conversation started, maybe you should just ask them uh, what their views are on Brexit and whether they voted it. Okay, the purpose of this exercise was not really about what you said at all. Holly had a really interesting icebreaker question at the front, which is, if you were on stars in our eyes, who would you be? Great question. Uh, I would probably be, I, Ben thinks I should be Nick Cave. I potentially go for Morrissey, but anyway. So the point of that little silly example was this. That experience of engaging with another person, of being present with another person, it's very different to the experience that you had of realizing that you've been sitting on Christian for a while, right? And <laughs> I, think, I think this helpfully points out to us something about God's presence, that it's true that God is present all around us, whatever we do and wh wherever we go. But it's also true that we can experience God's presence and we can engage with God's presence in some ways similar to the way you're engaging with the person sitting next to you. The Reformation theologian Martin Luther, I think, puts this in really amusing terms when he writes about the importance of um, Christ's presence in communion. And he says, in, Martin Luther is, you might not think it, but he's incredibly funny in some of the examples he uses. But he says, anyway, since Christ is omnipresent, that means he's present everywhere, he is present in the cabbage on my table and the soup in my table. But it's different when Christ is present for us. And in communion, Martin Luther thinks Christ is particularly present for us. We are engaged with Christ's presence. And the point can be engaged more generally. that The Bible does teach that God is present and at work, but it also teaches and it also speaks about God's presence as something we can experience, something we can engage with, and um, in a place where we can hear God speaking. So... With that distinction in mind, I'd like you to think about a quick question. When was the last time you experienced God's presence? For some of you, that question fills you with utter joy. I, I, we all have people in mind that are like this, that think, you know what, Josh, that's a stupid trick question. I am basking in the presence of God right now as you speak. I can sense the things that he's doing. And I mean, I'm kind of saying this in a jokey way, but those people are really awesome people to be around. They help to draw us into the presence of God. When I was at university, um, I lived a few doors down from 
a friend of mine, Tasha, who some of you will know, probably like most of you probably don't know her, but Tasha was this kind of person that you couldn't meet up for coffee with her without her giving you like three words of prophecy and praying for you, and you just felt like you'd been hit by a Holy Spirit bus every time you hung out with her. And that's great, but when was the last time you experienced God's presence? Some of you will hate me asking that question. The thought of you might make you feel a little bit sick inside, actually. Maybe you've realized that I'm actually onto you. You don't belong in this church. God speaks to everyone else, but he doesn't speak to me. And in fact, one of your most dreaded times at church is when the speaker asks you a question like, when did God, when did you last experience God's presence? Or maybe when the worship leader asks, invites you to ask God for a word or picture. Maybe you think, that's not me. That's for holy people. That's for people like Tasha. That's not for me. I don't experience God in that way. If you hear nothing else that I have to say today to you, hear this. It is a complete lie that experiencing God is only for the holy people of this world. And it's a lie that because you don't feel or experience God's presence, that you're somehow an inferior Christian, that you don't belong in this church or in this community. Not only is that not true, but it's extremely damaging. Our faith is not grounded in what we experience. It's grounded in what the things that God has done for us. It's grounded in the work of Christ, and it's grounded in what the Spirit does for us. Does God want to draw you into a deep and loving relationship with him? Of course he does, yes. Does God want you to experience the richness of his presence? Of course he does. But does this look the same for every one of us? Absolutely not. The fact is, if you, look, if you flick through the pages of Scripture, you'll see that God's presence is something which looks different for everybody. The Bible describes God's presence in the still, small voice. It describes hearing God's presence in the silence. But it also describes God's presence as being in the fire and in the burning bush and in profound, moving experiences. And so the first thing that I want to reflect on about the nature of God, experiencing God's presence is that we cannot make the mark of our experience of God's presence how we perceive everyone else to be experiencing God. Because that it just won't work, and it, it just isn't how Scripture describes our relationship with God. But even still, even though it's true that we all experience God differently, and God's presence is different for all of us, there are some of us that will sometimes feel that it's not just that we, don't, we experience God differently, but we don't experience God at all. Even though we seek God earnestly, even though we trust God and put our faith in the promises of Scripture, all we see when we turn to pray is silence. And let me tell you this, that this is an incredibly common experience. This is not something that is just happening to you for the first time. And this is something that's been happening to people that are followers of Christ for centuries. The, the person that I really like to think about when I'm reflecting on this is uh, Mother Teresa. Whatever you, you think of Mother Teresa, she's held up by our society as being an exemplar of the Christian life, of the spiritual life. But if you look at Mother Teresa's writings, her reflections on her own spirituality, her own experience was one in which she felt a deep sense of God's loss and God's absence in her life. Um, I'll just read to you quickly from 
um, one of these accounts in which she describes this in quite vivid detail. She says, Lord my God, who am I that you should forsake me? The child of your love and now become the most hated one. The one you have thrown away is unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, but there is no one to answer. When I raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such a convicting emptiness that these very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Now, this experience that Mother Teresa describes here is not something that you just find in spiritual writings and in biographies. But the Bible, as, as well as having a lot to say about God's presence, has many, many accounts of people that experience and are frustrated with God for not being present. And again, the Psalms are a really excellent place to go for this kind of thinking because what you see is people's honest experiences and reflections on God. So we're going to spend a little bit of time this evening just reflecting on the words of Psalm 13, which I think really helpfully outlines some of this experience. But as we'll see soon, it also helpfully explains what we can do when we're in this place. So the Psalmist, I think, sounds really similar to Mother Teresa in the kind of, um, the kind of cry that, that, that he has to God. So Psalm 13 begins with these words. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now, I don't know if you identify with that kind of experience or not. I personally can say that there have been many times when I've turned to God in prayer, and that would be an honest description of my experience of God's presence. And when you, when you have that kind of experience, when you feel like God is not present, um, that when you turn to look for God in your, your thoughts and in your hearts, all you hear is silence, this can be an incredibly isolating experience. And I think partly this is because we feel like we are alone, that no one else in our community, no one else in our world feels like this. But it's important to recognize that actually this experience is something which is incredible. This is very common, and people have been describing for centuries and centuries. The fact that it's in the pages of Scripture means that God wants us to take this kind of experience seriously, to engage with it. And throughout the history of theology, um, there have been many people that have tried to give some kind of answer to why is it that sometimes God seems to withdraw from us or seems to be absent from us. And one of the, uh, probably one of the most famous of these accounts, you'll find in uh, John of the Cross, a 16th century Spanish mystic who wrote the short piece of poetry, The Dark Night of the Soul. Some of you might have read it. If you haven't, I'd really recommend it as a really helpful reflection on some of the issues that, are, that we're thinking about this evening. And as John, the, as John of the Cross describes it, the kind of experience that we hear here from the psalmist um, is an important part of our spiritual maturation as Christians. It's important as we mature as Christians that we both experience God's presence, but he also thinks there can be a role for our experience of God's absence in developing as Christians. And as, as John describes it, God's absence can act as a kind of refining process where we begin to see how really how much in need we are of more of God's presence in our lives, how little we desire, truly desire what God wants for us. And he describes this in many pages using an analogy which you find in, in a lot of different places in the Bible, which is that of 
um, a mother weaning a small child. And um, I imagine that there aren't many of you here that know much about weaning. Um, <laughs> I have a limited experience of weaning. I've, I've got a 15-month-year-old who only eats solid food. But the experience of moving from being only, your only nutrition comes from breast milk, this really intimate relationship with the mother, moving to, being, to, to be eating solid foods, for the infant is a really confusing and excruciating time. They've, their mother, their closest companion, has withdrawn from them and taken the thing that they need the most. But actually, as outsiders, we can reflect on that experience and see that it's perfectly for the good of the baby that they are able to digest more solid foods, that that experience changes, that even though it feels like an excruciating experience of the mother's absence, it's actually a shift in their relationship. And John of the Cross thinks that can help us to think about what's going on with our experience with God when God withdraws from us. That actually, even though it might feel like a complete absence of God's presence, God can use that experience to mature us, to deepen our desires for him. And actually, our relationship with God shifts many times in our lives. Um, for those of you that know me, you'll know that I'm a fairly steady guy, and I don't, I'm not kind of taken to like a really extreme spirituality all of the time. But as a, you probably wouldn't know that as a teenager, I was the kind of child that um, I was, I used to play keyboard in the worship band and I was rebuked for not playing enough keyboard and doing too much worshiping of God. Um, and that was uh, an incredibly formative time in my spiritual life. But um, as I went to university and, and thought and spent a lot of time doubting and questioning my faith, my experience of God also shifted, and my experience of God became very different. And actually, now I would describe that I, take mu I draw much closer to God in moments of silence and contemplation than I do in big, exciting, charismatic worship. But my point is simply this, that throughout our lives, our experience of God changes many times. And it can be really unsettling when that happens, but actually God can use it for his good. And many of you might have that same experience coming to university. You've come away from a place where you're safe and where you're in the confines of your family to choosing who you want to be. You have this opportunity to, um, to change the kind of person you want to be. And that is going to have some impact on your spiritual life as well. But I think one of, I know from my own life, one of the main reasons that God is not as present to me as I'd like him to be is because I fail to truly be present to God. And the person that I think puts this better than I could ever do is uh, a Greek Orthodox Archbishop called Anthony Bloom. And he, he writes this series of really excellent books on prayer. Um, if you're looking for a good book on prayer, I can really recommend um, his books on prayer. If you want to know more, come and talk to me afterwards. But um, Archbishop Anthony says this, that our relationship with God always has to be a mutual relationship, and it must develop in mutual freedom. And if you look at the relationship in terms of mutual relationship, you see that God could complain about us a great deal more than we could about him. We complain that he does not make himself present to us in the few moments we reserve for him. But what about the 23 and a half hours in which God may be knocking at our door and we answer, I am busy, I am sorry, or when we do not answer because we do not even hear the knock at the door of our heart or of our minds or our conscience or our life. So there is a situation in which we do not have a right to complain about the absence of God, 
because we are a great deal more absent than he ever is. Now, I know in my own life that I often have to read this section of Anthony Bloom's book on the school for prayer because it just kind of hits me like a sleeper train every time I read it because it speaks so true of our, my experience of prayer. And particularly, I think, in our generation in which um, we are, let's face it, many of us addicted to smartphones and social media. It bec it's becoming increasingly difficult for us to be present to anything, let alone to God. When was the last time you uh, watched a film at home all the way through without looking on Facebook or looking on your phone during it? When was the last time you went out for a good meal or a good cup of coffee and didn't feel like you had to post it on Instagram? While there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things, they do often prevent us from being truly present to the world. How many, when was the last time you went out for a meal with your friends or family in which no one looked at their phone even once? How many times do you go to a social gathering and you don't even see the glimpse of a phone? How many of you checked your phone since I started preaching? If we fail to be present to our world, to our children, to our friends, to our church, to our families, how can we even expect to begin to be present to God? So sometimes God uses his absence to mature us as Christians and to bring us into a deeper relationship with him. But often, God's absence is all to do with our own absence and not very much to do with God's absence. So I'm gonna, we're just going to finish with, um, we thought about a little bit about God's presence and I've been reflecting a bit on God's absence. And now I'm just going to finish by thinking about how we, what we can do when we experience the absence of God, regardless of what reason we experience it for. And I think helpfully, Psalm 13 really gives us a great response to how we can respond to this experience. So after this really heartfelt cry of God's absence in the world, after pouring his heart out there, all he sees is silence when he looks for God's voice. He finishes with these two really simple verses, which I think um, are incredibly powerful and helpful for us. And he says this, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. The psalmist tells us here in two really simple sentences that God's absence is never a reason for us to stop worshipping God. It's never a reason for us to stop trusting God. In fact, it's more a reason to start trusting God and to start worshipping God. As it says in 1 Timothy 4, we need to train ourselves to be godly. There's our spiritual lives, our relationship with God, involves some kind of training. Our worship of God has to somehow become second nature to us. And one of the things that really brought this home to me was... Um, going to uh, the funeral of one of my close friend's uh, parents who sadly died in their 60s from lung cancer. And um, I didn't really know uh, my friend Pippa's dad at all, but um, we decided, me and my wife Ellie decided to go along to the funeral to support the family. And we heard this funeral was incredibly long. It was about two hours. And people just kept coming up and telling stories of what a great man Malcolm was and what a faithful servant of Christ he was. 
And speaking of this guy who had an incredibly profound trust in God. And I did, as I said, I didn't know Malcolm very well, but from the stories and from talking to Pippa more about it, um, I kind of built up a picture of Malcolm. And um, Malcolm is, wasn't particularly a, like emotionally extreme kind of guy. Malcolm was pretty steady, and I, I imagine he probably wouldn't have ex- described his experience of God as being really profound and really powerful all the time. But talking to Pippa, um, she told me that Malcolm used to come down every morning um, before he went to work or before he did what he was doing when he was on holiday. And he would devote his time to seeking God in prayer and studying scripture. He would do this whatever, however he felt, um, whatever day he was facing, he would look to God in prayer. And in the last few years of Malcolm's life, just before he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, he had an incredibly profound and powerful experience of God's presence in one of those daily quiet times in the morning. And he felt, um, as Pippa described it to me, that he was in some way being prepared for his death, that he was meeting with God in a real way. But the thing is, for 30, 40 years of his life, Malcolm devoted himself to prayer without any profound, powerful experience of God's presence because he was a disciplined and relentless worshipper of God. And I'm just bowled over by this story again and again because I look at my own life and I wonder... What would people say the same of me at my funeral? I'm all too aware that most of the time I want all of the experience of God's presence, but I don't want to be spiritually disciplined. I don't want to put the work in. And I think reflecting on this in the last few months as I've been up in Scotland a little bit, um, I, I've been, I grew up in the charismatic church most of my life. And I was part of G2 for 10 years as a student and um, as I went into work. And I think as charismatics, sometimes we can be incredibly down on the idea of going through the motions. We think actually going through the motions has to always be a dreadful thing. That somehow if we go through the motions in worship and prayer, that we lack sincerity. But actually, although the values of authenticity and spontaneity are incredibly important in worship and prayer, so are the values of habit and repetition. And as um, we've moved up to St. Andrews, our experience of worship and prayer has become incredibly different. So um, my wife, Ellie, and I feel deep, we feel really called to serve the Anglican Church for the rest of our lives um, in some capacity. So when we went to St. Andrews, we didn't look around for which churches to go to. We looked at the two Anglican churches, and we could have gone to the really traditional church or the traditional church. That was our choice. So either we went to a church with uh, a choir, robes, and incense, or a church with a choir and robes and no incense. That was our choice. And, and the church that we go to in St. Andrews in, couldn't be more different from this in a lot of ways. Um, every week we read pretty much the same words. We use the same, wor- the same pieces of liturgy. Um, we go through the confession. Um, we hear from scripture. We have a sermon, we sing some hymns that I don't know and can't possibly sing along with. Um, And then we have communion, we say the communion liturgy, and then we're sent out into the world. Now this experience of worshipping this way is incredibly repetitive. But I've also found that there's something incredibly powerful about that way of worshipping and relating to God. And I think as I thought more about it, one of the things that I really value about that is this. That I don't always feel like dancing down the aisle in worship. I don't always feel God's presence 
overwhelmingly. But in some ways, I found it really helpful that when I come to confess to God, I have words that have been thought through and words that can help me and prompt me to confess and to worship. The thing is that we need to realize, I think, is that we are shaped by the things that we do as much as the things that we think and feel. Habit and ritual are not things which are confined to church worship. In fact, if you look around your lives, you will find your lives are steeped with habit and ritual, whether you think about it or not. We are habitualized by our society what kind of clothes to wear. We are habitualized what kind of people we should be spending time with, what kind of drinks we should be drinking. I mean, the very, the very principles behind social media and uh, a lot of a lot of this Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, is that repetition is an incredible, incredibly powerful way of instilling a value into a society. The fact that you repeatedly check your Instagram post um, every hour or so means that you are repetitively putting habits in your life which speak of a certain value. Now, I think when we realize this, when we realize that um, we are habitualized creatures, that actually we spend a lot of our time um, engaging in activities that we don't always reflect on, but which deeply shape us as people. We also have the power to think about how we use habits and rituals. We have the power to think about whether the habits and rituals we use speak of God's gospel and speak of worship of God, or whether they speak of the values that our society wants us to believe in. And one of the things that has helped me to reflect on this is um, starting to learn how to be a dad for the first time. Um, so my little boy Judah has just started to become a little defiant. So he's got maybe about six words, but one of them is definitely no. And um, he can wag his finger very aggressively like his mother does. Um, when you want him to do something, he doesn't want to do it. He says, no. Now, he also is quite rude, really, to a lot of other children. In creche, um, he'll quite happily, if somebody else is playing with a toy, pick it up and start eating it, because, I mean, why wouldn't it? It looks delicious. But the thing is that when Judah does that, one of the important things for me to do as a dad, to train him in how to relate to people in the world, is to say, Judah, say sorry to Emma for eating her crayons again. And do you know what? I think I will probably say that one sentence, Judah, say sorry to maybe a million more times in my life, maybe more. Now, does Judah really feel sorry when he says sorry? Of course he doesn't mean it. And do you think he'll mean it anytime soon? Probably not. Do you think that as a dad, I should wait until Judah learns how to feel sorry before he says sorry? Of course not. I mean, all of us were brought up to learn how to relate to people and to the world through our habits and through our repetition. And I think we need to think about this when it comes to God. Anybody that's tried to make a friendship or a marriage um, or a relationship work knows the importance both of the spontaneous and the monotonous. Good relationships require repetition, they require hard work, and they require saying, I love you, even when you actually really <laughs> loathe the person that you're standing before. Because that kind of repetition really instills in us what it means to love, that we are relentless in our love, even when we feel like the other person is <laughs> horrible. And 
I think this is incredibly important when we reflect on our experience of God's absence and what we do in the face of it. Because what the psalmist tells us is that he feels completely cut off from God, that he feels that God has isolated him and abandoned him. But what does he tell us in response? He tells us that that will not stop his relentless drive to worship God and to trust in God's promises. We need to train ourselves to be godly. We need to train ourselves in worship. We need to train ourselves in confession. And this is even more the case when we are feeling great, when we are feeling really close to God and um, we're experiencing God's presence all the time. It's even more important that we instill this discipline that when we are feeling empty and lost and silent, that we have this second nature, this relating to God to fall back on. And the reality is training is something that takes a long time to do. So recently I've been um, starting to try and get a bit fitter because I am carrying a little bit too much around the middle. Um, and I started doing the NHS's Couch to 5K app. I don't know if any of you have done it. I mean, I find every time I do it, it's excruciatingly difficult. It's probably because you're meant to do it three times a week and I do it about three times a month. But um, <laughs> the I came to this realization the other day. I'd just been to the gym. I'd run 20 minutes at 6.5 miles an hour. And um, some of you that I'm sure you do that every morning. For me, that was, I felt like a benchmark of achievement in my personal fitness, right? And then I came home and I turned on the TV and the London Marathon was on. And I suddenly realized that if I ran for 6.5 miles an hour, I could just about get over the finish line in four hours. Um, and the thought of running 25 minutes at 6.5 miles an hour makes me feel physically sick. And then I also came to the realization that to win the London Marathon, which, let's face it, is um, probably past my capabilities at this point <laughs> in life, um, but if I was going to get in shape to run the London Marathon, um, I'd not only have to run the, it in two hours, but I'd have to run it in double the speed for two hours. And um, the thought of running at 13 miles an hour for a minute... <laughs> Um, doesn't only make me feel physically sick, I actually want to sit down right now. Um, but the thought, that, I mean, the point that I'm trying to make is this. For any of you that have been involved in any kind of physical training, you'll know that progress is slow. Like, I might be able to run 21 minutes next week. Um, maybe if I actually go three times a week, I might be able to run 22 minutes in a few more weeks' time. But it takes those little things to build my strength, to build my stamina. And we need to do the same in our worship and our prayer. And often I find getting to the gym, do you know what the hardest bit is? It's putting your trainers in your, in your bag before you go to work. And I think the same is true of our spiritual lives, that actually all of us deeply long to, to seek after God in prayer. We deeply long to hear from what he says um, in his word. But actually... We just need to get past that first step sometimes. We just need to put our trainers on. And I think this is incredibly important if we are to be people that live through the experience of God's presence, but also the experience of God's absence. Because we need to be spiritual athletes that are able to cope when things don't always go the way we'd like. So... We're going to spend some time just reflecting on some of this now. And 
What I'd like us to do to start with, maybe something that you're not very familiar with, but I thought I'd bring to you a little bit of something that I find incredibly powerful in my own spiritual life, which is the value of silence. And just being still with no distractions, with no phones, without thinking about anything or without looking at anything is a really helpful way for me just to be aware of the fact that God is present. For some of you, this might be a very real experience that God is present with you and that you experience the richness of his presence. For some of you, it might be that this experience is one of God's absence. But be assured that God is present. The words that we're going to use just as we um, come out of this silence are from Psalm 46. And the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. He doesn't say, be still and experience that I am God. He doesn't say, be still and attend to me as God. He says, be still and know that I am God. And I think for some of us, that's as much as we can do. Be still and know that God is present in our world, in our lives. And that is incredibly important. And that is the sort of thing that will equip us to be spiritual athletes. So I'm gonna, we're going to spend a couple of minutes in silence. And then when we finished... Um, the, the words of Psalm 46 are going to come up on the screen, and we're going to read that psalm together um, as an act of worship to God, and then the band are going to lead straight into her time of sung worship. So let me pray, and then um, spend this time in silence just reflecting on the God's presence with us. So, Almighty God, we thank you that you are present. We thank you that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you long for us to come close to you, to draw near to you, and to be with you. We pray that in the stillness of this moment, we may know your presence. We may know that you are present. We may know that you are with us. And for those of us that are in a time in which we feel that you are absent from us, we pray that this moment would be a time when we are relentless in our pursuit of you, in our worship of you, and our desire for you. We pray that you would strengthen us all as people that live this life that with the kind of relentless worship that we've been thinking about today, that whatever happens to us spiritually, whatever we go through, we would be people that trust in your promises and worship you as God. We pray that in the stillness, we would know your presence with us now.